Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. As we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in the Gospel according to Mark, we've come to the only story in the Gospel of Mark that is not directly about the Lord Jesus Christ. How interesting. Well, as you're turning there to Mark chapter 6, I'd like you to consider a quote with me. It's an excellent quote, one that is from an excellent book by a man named Henry Skugel, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Isn't that a great title? The Life of God in the Soul of Man. I would recommend the book for your reading. Henry Skugel was a Scottish minister, a theologian, and an author, obviously. But he died young. He died of tuberculosis just shy of his 28th birthday. And yet before he went to be with the Lord, he left us the gems that are found in this book and other writings as well. And one of those gems is this. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. You love small things, you'll have a small soul. Love worthless things, you'll have a worthless soul. But if you love God chiefly, foremost, then you will have a soul that is of immeasurable quality, for God is immeasurably worthy of our love. And in no greater contrast could we have this illustrated than in the souls of John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. These are the two main characters in our text for today. And as we compare and contrast the worth and excellency of John the Baptist's soul with the worthlessness and lack of excellence in the soul of Herod Antipas, we will see that the difference between them is the difference between the object of their soul's loves. How important for us to be able to examine ourselves in light of this great contrast to becoming more like John the Baptist with the object of our love being Christ, the bridegroom, and less like Herod with the object of his love being himself. Oh, what a terrible and miserable condition that is. So, Mark chapter 6, verse 14 is where we're picking up today. I'd like to read the text in its entirety for us at the beginning, and then we're going to break it down into two sections. So follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put John to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. 
And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here we have the only historical account, the only story in the Gospel of Mark that's not directly about Jesus Christ. And as you read through it, you find out that it is a fascinating story full of interesting characters. And while John the Baptist is the subject, he actually factors very little in the action. But the action is all taking place between Herod, Herod's daughter, and Herod's wife. And what a trio this is. Is there any greater contrast that could be formed in Scripture than John the Baptist and Herod, as we have it here recorded and laid out in this story? You've got the peasant versus the king. You've got the ascetic who's out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey versus the king in his palace with his feasts. You've got the man of God versus the politician. You've got the one who exalts Christ versus the one who is seeking his own glory. And you've got the one who has the power of the truth versus the one who has the power of the sword. What a pair these two make. What a great story. Now, in verses 14 through 16, we'll start here, and you see that there were different ideas circulating around among the people as to exactly who Jesus was. And some people actually had this notion that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now, you realize in the first century, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have all the access to information that we have. There weren't professional reporters that lived in these communities. But instead, news got around largely through word of mouth and rumors. And so even though there had been some overlap between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, this is not something that everybody knew. Everybody knew that John the Baptist had come first and that now something amazing was happening with this man Jesus of Nazareth. But there was a, a significant number of people who thought that they were actually one and the same. That John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod, but then God had brought John the Baptist back to life, and now he's doing these amazing miracles. Now, if you go back and you read some of what we know about John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, we recognize that John did not perform any miracles. And there it says in John chapter 10, verse 41, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So the prophetic ministry of John was not accompanied by miraculous powers, but instead it was just the truthfulness of his words and the power of his preaching that identified him as a prophet. But the people thought, you know, Herod killed John the Baptist, and now God has raised him from the dead, and that miracle of raising him from the dead has now kick-started all these miracles that John the Baptist, risen from the dead, is now doing. And so there was confusion as to who Jesus was. Some actually thought he was John the Baptist. But others 
knew that Jesus was a different person than John. Perhaps they'd seen John and they'd seen Jesus and they're like, no, it's not the same guy. He's probably a prophet. Or, as the second example here states, he is Elijah, whom the people were expecting to come before the day of the Lord. Turn from Mark chapter 6 over to Mark chapter 8. There's a very similar passage here in the 8th chapter of Mark, which will be out in a, a month or two, right? And in Mark chapter 8, verses 20 to 7 to 29, Jesus asks his disciples that question. He's on the road, traveling from Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? At the end of verse 27 in chapter 8. And the disciples told him, John the Baptist. So the same that we had there recorded in chapter 6. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And here's where Peter gets to confess, you are the Christ. And that's where he strictly charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. But the people were expecting Elijah. We see that not only here in chapter 6, but also in chapter 8. And so the question is why? Why did people think Elijah was coming back? Why did they identify this miracle worker who's a prophet going around from village to village as Elijah? Well, Elijah had done many miracles, but remember this about Elijah. Elijah had never died. Remember how God took Elijah to heaven in the chariot of fire, the whirlwind bringing him up, and so his mantle passed on to Elisha? Well, because Elijah never died, and because of how the Old Testament ends, there in Malachi chapter 4, where God had promised in the last of the twelve, in the end of the Old Testament scriptures, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so you've got John the Baptist coming and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and that the day of the Lord is here. And Jesus comes preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so people are saying, well, it must be Elijah because God promised that he would send us Elijah before the coming tribulation and before the setting up of God's kingdom. Now, this coming of Elijah is an interesting aspect of New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because it's one of those instances where you have a partial or potential fulfillment along with a future fulfillment in a more full way. Let me show you. You can jot down the reference here. We don't have time to turn to all of these passages. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus told his disciples, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And here he's referencing John the Baptist. So Jesus said that there's an if that would then identify John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 that he is Elijah, but only if the people of Israel or the Jews are willing to accept it. And they did not accept it. They rejected John the Baptist although many people did believe. They rejected Jesus, even though many did come to believe in him after his resurrection. But ultimately, the people of Israel rejected this ministry, this prophetic word, and suffered destruction in 70 AD. And so there will be a future time in which God will send Elijah again before the great and awesome day of the Lord, as recorded in the book of Revelation. So very interesting. God had promised 
In Mark chapter 9, well, another passage very similar to what we just read in Matthew, that Jesus said there to his disciples, Elijah has come. And he's referring to John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. And that's the account that we have here in Mark chapter 6 of them doing to John the Baptist whatever they please. They put him to death. They cut off his head. And then finally, in Luke chapter 1, in the prophecy of John the Baptist's birth, as the angel delivered it to John's father, he told him that this son will go before him, that is, the coming Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that last part where he's turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the way of wisdom, that is a quote from Malachi chapter 4 verse 6, which is right after what we just read about the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in one sense, John the Baptist is that fulfillment of Elijah coming in preparation for the day of the Lord. But in another sense, that has been delayed, and there will be a second fulfillment of Elijah coming, which may actually be a literal coming of Elijah. There might be a, an actual, since he never died, return to earth of Elijah the prophet. That would be very fascinating. Now, those were the current views among the Jewish people as to who Jesus of Nazareth was and who this miracle worker that they were hearing about. Many of them had not seen Jesus. Herod had not seen Jesus. And so when Herod hears about this miracle worker who's going around from village to village, he has a certain one of those three positions that are standing out for him. He has a certain bias towards the first position. You see that there in verse 16. When Herod heard of Jesus' miraculous ministry, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, bias is an interesting thing. Partiality is an interesting thing. And here, it's Herod's paranoia and his guilty conscience that is causing him to think that this miracle worker is John the Baptist. Since he's the one who put John the Baptist to death, and he has this guilty heart before God, he thinks, this must be the case. I'm the one that did it, and now I'm in trouble. God's raised him from the dead, and, and boy, what am I going to do? And so Herod really wants to see Jesus because he's trying to figure out, is this John the Baptist? And we'll find that as we continue in the Gospels. But here we get insight into how Herod had killed John the Baptist. And Mark puts it here in the Gospel, in between the sending out of the 12 disciples on their first mission, which we have there in verses 7 through 13, and then their return and reporting back to Jesus everything that they did in verse 30. Interesting place for Mark to include this account of the death of John the Baptist. Why do you think the Spirit of God led Mark to put that right here? Well, just as John the Baptist preached Jesus and was put to death, so many of these disciples who are just starting out to go out and preach Jesus they need to be prepared to meet the same fate. And many of them will meet the same fate. James, the brother of John, being the first martyr among the apostles. But then, one after another, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ giving their life for preaching the kingdom of God, just as John the Baptist gave his life for preaching the truth of God. And this is here for us. 
that if you are going to proclaim Christ in this day, you also have to be prepared to meet the same end as John the Baptist. Let's look at this story with that heart, with that mind, with that context surrounding it. All right? So in verses 17 through 29, we have the history of Herod Antipas and John the Baptist. First, looking in verses 17 to 20 about his arrest, but then continuing on in verses 21 through 29 with the beheading of John. Now, so far, all that we've heard about John the Baptist was in chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. That was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John came preaching in the wilderness. We have those opening verses about how John was sent ahead of Jesus. And then in verse 13, we are told that John was arrested in Mark chapter 1. But who arrested him wasn't mentioned, and we didn't have any details about what happened after his arrest. We were just told that he baptized Jesus, and then he was arrested. Now, there's probably about six months between the baptism of Jesus and the arrest of John. And Jesus' ministry now has probably gone on for about two years at this point when he's sending out the 12 apostles on their first mission. So how long John was in prison before he died and all of that, not a long time, but a period of months, most likely, maybe even up to a year. Now, John's ministry was actually pretty short. He didn't start preaching that long before he was arrested and put in prison. And then he didn't live in prison that long. Most estimates put John's ministry around one year, just one year of preaching and baptizing. And yet, John had such a deep and profound impact upon his world that decades later, we still find disciples of John the Baptist far away from Jerusalem in other parts of the world as the gospel is going out in the Gentile mission. So that was a a very brief ministry, but a very powerful and impactful ministry. And it had a big impact on one particular ruler whose story we have here, King Herod. Now, Herod is a very common name in the New Testament. We meet a number of different men who go by this name because it's really more of a dynasty than a personal name. And it goes back to Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who was ruling during the time that Jesus was born. But Herod the Great had ten wives, many children, and the Herod family tree is a mess. It gets all convoluted. And we see some of that mess here with Herod Antipas. So Antipas was his name, Herod was more of his family dynasty title, and Herod here is technically not a king, though he's called a king in the Jewish mindset, and the Romans had actually given him the rule of Galilee and Perea as a tetrarch. A tetrarch means a rulership of four. So he was one of four rulers who took over after Herod the Great died, and he was in charge of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to 39 AD. 4 BC to 39 AD. And you see in the text that Herod, Antipas, had married his brother Philip's wife. On a trip to Rome, Herod spent time with his half-brother because the ten wives of Herod the Great, Philip was actually a half-brother. And Herodias who had been married to Philip, decided that she could advance herself and perhaps be happier by not being married to Philip, but by being married to Herod Antipas. And so according to Roman law, she divorced her husband and married Herod Antipas. But this was against Torah. This was against Jewish law. 
And Herod, Antipas, is supposed to be a ruler over the Jews in Galilee. And when you flout Jewish law like this while claiming to be a convert to Judaism, we think that he claimed to be uh, Jewish even though he wasn't born Jewish. Herod was actually an Edomite, his father, Herod the Great. And yet he's delegitimizing his rule in the eyes of the Jewish people by this Roman divorce against the law that God had given to his people in Leviticus. Leviticus 18.16, Leviticus 20, verse 21, a couple of places in the Old Testament law where it says that you can't marry your brother's wife. That is uncleanness. It's not right in God's eyes. And notice that John took it upon himself to personally tell Herod that this was not lawful. Now this is an interesting thing, right? Again, this is a part of Scripture where we're just being told what happened in history. This is not telling us exactly you have to do exactly what's happening here. We call this a descriptive part of Scripture rather than a prescriptive part of Scripture. But notice this. John is a prophet of God. John is a holy man. So in context, the actions of John here appear to be commended by Scripture and appear to be an example for us to follow. I say that because in our time, we have a lot of leaders of the church who do not want to speak words that would be offensive to those who are in positions of political power and authority. And they want to be very careful about how they represent themselves and how they spend their political capital as evangelical leaders. They think it's their job as evangelical leaders to kind of protect the church from persecution by trying to schmooze, if I can use that word, the political leaders and authorities of our world. But that wasn't the way that John the Baptist approached ministry. John the Baptist, with this king who, whose life was a mess, he actually goes and confronts him on a very sensitive subject, that of his marriage. Not only sensitive to Herod, but sensitive to Herod's wife. And you don't want to offend the queen, and you don't want to offend the king. And other people might have asked John, what's the point of doing this, John? I mean, he's Herod, son of Herod the Great. These people are as wicked as wicked comes, and you want to go and rebuke him on an illegal marriage? He's a lost cause. Why go and make an enemy you don't have to make? It doesn't seem like a very savvy move on John's part. And I think that's kind of the point that I want to bring out. Let's stop trying to be so savvy and let's instead just speak the truth in love. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's not weighing out the political advantages and disadvantages of this. He's not weighing out, what are the chances that Herod's going to actually listen to me on this? Maybe I'm just casting my pearls before swine. I shouldn't go and tell Herod this. As a prophet of God, it was his job to tell when the ruler, who was supposed to be an example to the people, was doing what was wicked in God's sight. And so John takes a public stand on this and he has to pay for that. He pays for it with imprisonment. Now, there's more going on here than just what Mark is talking about. There's also a political side to this that is actually brought out by some of the other gospel writers that Herod not only is personally offended, and really you see Herodias is more offended than Herod on the personal side, but that Herod is also concerned politically about John. We learn this from other sources. And he's, he's worried that John is going to start a movement that might lead to some kind of rebellion. And so he thinks it's just safer to have him in jail where he can't stir up 
anything that might get out of control. And so politically and personally, John the Baptist is in prison for reasons. Now, someone has to speak truth to power, and yet when doing so, you have to recognize that you are taking your life in your hands. Proverbs 20, verse 2, an important proverb for all of us to learn in the time that we live. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. If you're going to provoke a ruler to anger, you better be ready for the consequences. Count the cost is what Jesus says about following him and and doing God's will. We'll be talking about more of that in our closing here in a little bit. Now, as the feast comes together, you've got an opportunity for Herodias because it's Herod's birthday and he's giving a big banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And here you've got the opposite of the church gathering. In the church, you've got those who are not wise or powerful and not of noble birth. But here you've got all those who are wise and worldly eyes noble and powerful, gathered together for a big birthday celebration. Now, birthday celebrations, interestingly, were kind of looked down upon by the Jews. The Jews thought, that's pagan stuff. We don't do birthday celebrations. But the Romans, oh, they loved their big birthday parties, especially for those who are rich and powerful, make a big deal about themselves. So that's what Herod's doing. He's celebrating himself. And he's got all of his big wigs around him to help him celebrate himself. And, And they're enjoying themselves in the palace there. And nearby, John's in the prison. So you get the picture of of what this world is like. The rich and powerful celebrating themselves while the righteous are in prison. Now Herodias, remember in verse 19, she had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. But Herod wouldn't allow it because Herod had this lingering fear of God. He had this sense that, well, John is a righteous and holy man and if I kill him, God's going to punish me even more than putting him in prison. But Herodias isn't concerned about that. She's just looking for any chance she can get. A good translation of verse 19 would be she had it in for him. It's actually a Greek idiom here that is very similar to our idiom of having it in for someone. So she has it in for him, and she's just looking for that chance to put him to death. And here's the chance on Herod's birthday. Let's look at it again. Read the text. So Herodias' daughter comes in and dances. And the scripture is is remarkably restrained in describing that dance, but you can imagine what kind of dance it was that was pleasing Herod and his guests when you've got this teenage girl coming in and dancing and you've got this drunken party going on and it's it's all just these men. The the wives are not there. You know, she has to go ask her mother what she should ask for outside. And so what kind of a family do we have here where Herod's daughter-in-law is the dancing girl for the party? That's pretty messed up. And Herod, in verses 21 through 23, he's drunk with power, he's drunk with wine, he's drunk with pride, and he's pleased by this dancing girl, and he gets trapped in a foolish vow. He promises her whatever she wants. Now, when he says, up to half of my kingdom there, that's not meant literally, it's more of a, a hyperbolic statement that is understood that you can ask for something big and I'm going to give it to you. So, so don't ask for something small, ask for something big is what he's saying. Now, as I read verse 25, I changed the order of it a little bit and I put John the Baptist last because that's the way it reads in the original text. 
that she saves the dagger for the very end. She says, I desire that you give me immediately, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. And there's the dagger right there. She's smart enough to know what's going on in the family. She knows that her mother wants John dead and her father doesn't. And and she's going to side with her mother on this issue because her advancement depends upon her being in good with her mother and they're all doing their political machinations and everything that goes on behind the scenes. And so she's a pawn in this family drama that's going on. And just think how sad that is. You've got a rich and powerful father. He's going to give you anything you want because you've done a lascivious dance in front of uh, his party. And what a stupid thing, what a worthless thing to ask for. What are you going to do with a a man's head on a platter? That's so useless. It's so wicked. It's so petty. It's so vengeful. And so he gets shaken. Herod gets shaken out of his drunken stupor, drunk with power, drunk with wine, drunk with pride. And now, instead of being drunk with all these things, he's overcome with grief. He realizes the trap that he has fallen into. And you think about what's going through Herod's mind at this point. How could my wife be so petty and wicked? Why do I have such a foolish daughter? Why did I make such a stupid vow? How can she want this so badly? I don't understand women! And he's also wondering, what is God going to do to me because of this? And he has to make his choice. Do I sacrifice my pride or do I sacrifice John the Baptist? Do I maintain my position now or do I bring judgment upon myself later? And here is the foolish choice that sinners make. Spare myself now, pay later. Spare myself now, pay later. That's the choice that you have to make. Are you going to live for now or are you going to live in light of the judgment of God to come? Are you going to spare yourself the mockery of the world, the opposition of powerful people and corporations? Are you going to spare yourself being an outcast because of your stand for Jesus Christ? Will you confess him before men and take the pain now or will you deny him before men and take the pain later? Will you fear man Or will you fear God? The fear of man is a snare. And now Herod Antipas, the most powerful man in Galilee, is ensnared by the fear of man. Because of his guests, because of his oath, he has to do what he doesn't want to do. You see, being powerful, you still get traps. You still get snares. You're still bound to the situations that you find yourself in. A king is not free. He's only as free as his heart. And true freedom is not found in political power. True freedom is found in the power to do what is right, no matter what the cost. And when the soul chooses to do what's right, no matter what the cost, the soul is free. Who is the free man in this? The man at the feast or the man at the chopping block? The king was exceedingly sorrowful. Can you imagine being there for this? Oh, the depths of evil that the human heart is capable of plunging to. And as the platter is brought to the woman, the young girl, and then she delivers it to her mother, what a sad, sorry state. Can you imagine being this girl, bringing the head of a prophet of God to your mother 
and see the wicked grin on her face as her bloodthirst is satisfied? What's more gruesome, the head on the platter or the smile on Herodias' face? The only good part of the story is the end. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Better to be laid in a tomb by those who love the truth than to sit on a throne of deception and lies. As we look at this story, it reminds us that there is a beautiful anti-elitism in the Bible, like we have here in 1 Corinthians 1.26. God doesn't choose the wise. God doesn't choose the noble. God doesn't choose the powerful. But the anti-elitism that we find in the Bible is, is not mere populism, because the crowds themselves are often criticized in the Bible. The crowds don't know who Jesus is. The crowds are sheep without a shepherd. The crowds are foolish. But among the crowds, God does choose a small portion from the lower classes to share in the glory of God. And it is in that saved remnant among the lowly that we must look to for wisdom in every age. Truth and goodness is in the world, but it's in a small remnant of those who are not the elite. That's the way it was, that's the way it is, that's the way God has chosen to work. How does the story end for Herod? Well, Herod would face the wrath of the king of Petra not long after this. His name was Aretas, because he had divorced Aretas' daughter in order to marry Herodias. And so the whirly gig of time brings in its revenges, and the king of Petra uses that as an excuse to wage war against the king of Galilee, Tetrarch, and Herod Antipas gets destroyed in the battle. His army, he survives. And he's only able to survive because the Romans come to his aid just in time. And according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, writing a generation later, the Jewish people attributed Herod Antipas's defeat to divine retribution on account of John the baptizer. Herod would be deposed shortly later in A.D. 39, banished to Gaul by the emperor Caligula. Jesus warns us, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, we get to our application today. Beware of the leaven of Herod is also what Jesus said. Christ was killed by the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. John the Baptist was killed by the leaven of Herod. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Guard your heart. Root out any love that is unworthy and replace it with love for Jesus Christ. Notice the similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus. Both killed by tyrants who gave in to pressure from others. Political pressure. Both died as silent and righteous victims. Both were buried by their disciples. But Jesus rose from the grave. And John will rise from the grave because Jesus rose from the grave. And the resurrection changes everything. Suffer with Christ now and you will be glorified with him then. Deny Christ now and you will be rejected by him, denied by him then. The resurrection changes everything. So we come to our contrast between John the Baptist and Herod. And there we have the E in our spec application. 
an example to follow. Don't follow the example of Herod. Do follow the example of John. You know, tyrants have never been very capable of tolerating righteous men. And so it is today. And you have to ask yourself, who am I afraid of provoking? The Department of Justice? The FBI? The President? Powerful international corporations? Google, Apple? Look back at verse 20. Look at verse 20 once again. Herod feared John. The President, the DOJ, Apple, Google, what do they fear? They fear you. They fear you because you are righteous and holy. Don't fear them. They're afraid of you. Just like Herod was afraid of John. The worth and excellence of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Check the objects of your love. See, what is the chief object of my love? Do some heart analysis to see what your soul is worth. Now, I'd like to share with you a modern-day example that happened just this week. Recently, the governor of California up here on the left, his name is Gavin Newsom, he put billboards out across the nation advertising that if you want an abortion and your state is making it illegal, come to California. And on the billboard, advertising that they want you to come to California to kill your child, he put a Bible verse. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And so Gavin Newsom is being a very loving neighbor. All those poor women out there who who can't kill their children in their own state, come to our state and we'll kill your children for you. What a loving thing to do. And so this action by the governor of California caused John MacArthur, who has a church in California, to write an open letter to the governor this week. And I'd like to share that letter with you as an example of how to love your neighbor when he is powerful and evil. It says this, Sir, Almighty God in his word says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14:34. Scripture also teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and to punish evil doers. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7. You have not only failed in that responsibility, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evil doers and punishing the righteous. The word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident in the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism, and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem directly from corrupt public policy. I don't need to itemize or elaborate on the many immoral decisions you have perpetrated against God and the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. Psalm 72:11. 
Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. And Proverbs 16, 12. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. What God said to Cyrus is a truth that you should take to heart. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. In mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, and Isaiah 45, verses 9 through 12. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12:31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You used the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Moloch. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12.30 You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. Psalm 50 verses 16 through 19 speaks to people who pervert the word of God for their own sinful ends. It says this, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and you harness your tongue for deceit. My concern, Governor Newsom, MacArthur writes, is that your own soul lies in grave, eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God, according to Romans 14:12. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9:27. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge. And he will demand that you will give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins, what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail for you then? And by then, it will be too late for any remedy or redemption. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that, that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. In Psalm 50, after rebuking the wicked for uttering God's word in a profane way, Scripture makes this promise. Now consider this, you who forget God lest I tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. And he who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. 
So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ. Ask for forgiveness. And use your office to advance the cause of righteousness as is your duty instead of undermining it as has been your pattern. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For the master, John MacArthur. That's how you speak truth to power. Without fear. Only fearing God. Without self-righteousness. And yet in no way compromising the righteous standard of God. With condemnation of sin, but with offer of salvation. We pray for our governing leaders. Not just that they would govern in a way that helps us, but as men and women like us who need the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, in whatever political action you take, put the gospel of Jesus Christ at the very forefront. And never forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that for all the living, there is hope. Let's pray. Lord God, the chances of Governor Newsom being saved seem as small as that of Herod Antipas being saved. But you saved the Apostle Paul, chief among sinners, in order to demonstrate once and for all your perfect patience. As great as the sins of a man can be, greater far is the love of God and the mercy that is in your heart to welcome the repentant, believing sinner into your family as a child of God. And so we pray for all of our governing authorities, local, state, national. Lord, those who are most wicked, those who are most benevolent, Lord, every soul needs Jesus Christ. And that's the light that you have given to us to shine and to share in this world without fear of man, but love towards neighbor and love towards our God who has saved us out of our hopeless condition. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ and the good news that we have been entrusted with. Amen.